Let me tell you a story, a true story, that I told the high school students at winter camp this past year. Uh, H. Clay Trumbull was uh, a veteran of the United States Civil War who became a clergyman after the war. Um, during the war, he was captured by the Confederates, and in Confederate prison, some of his fellow prisoners came up with a, a scheme that would al allow them to escape. And the scheme involved their lying to one of their guards. And for that reason, because it involved telling a lie, Trumbull said he could not participate. They didn't understand this, and especially when Trumbull admitted that he would be willing to kill a guard in an escape plan, just not lie to him. He thought, well, this doesn't make sense. Isn't killing somebody worse than lying? And Trumbull's answer was that God, who writes the rules, has given people permission under certain circumstances, in a just war, for example, to take a life but that God never permits lying. So he remained in jail while some of his fellow prisoners escaped and was later set free in a prisoner exchange. Now, I could argue with Trumbull this morning, but I'd rather hold him up as an example of rigorous integrity. I could say, as I believe, that a lie is sometimes justifiable. To save a life, for example. But our text this morning invites us to consider not the exceptions, but the rule. And the rule, the norm, according to Jesus, is don't lie. Kingdom people are supposed to be people, like Trumbull, of rigorous integrity. Verse 33 of our text says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago. This is the fourth of six antitheses where Jesus draws a contrast between the rigorous righteousness demanded by the kingdom and the superficial righteousness that he saw all around him. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. One standard of truth is to make sure that you never lie when you're under oath. When you have sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you keep that promise. And uh, that's fine as far as it goes. You wouldn't lie if you were sworn to tell the truth. Good for you, but don't expect a pat on the back from Jesus if the rest of the time you think it's okay to fudge the truth, engage in half-truths, you can plagiarize, evade, mislead in your exaggerations. No, the kingdom righteousness that he holds out as the standard for his followers 
is a standard of rigorous integrity. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But, verse 34, I tell you, do not swear at all. Now, boys and girls, Jesus is not talking about using bad words. Okay, that, that's wrong too. But what he's talking about here is more the kind of thing that you may have heard when people say, I swear to God, or cross my heart and hope to die, which is another way of saying, if I'm lying, may God strike me dead. These are the kind of things that people say when they want you to really, really, really believe them. They're really telling the truth this time. And Jesus is saying in this paragraph that his people should not have to bolster what they are saying by oaths, by swearing. And they shouldn't think that when they're not under oath, it's okay to lie because they've got their fingers crossed behind their back. Or because telling the truth might be embarrassing to them. Or because telling the truth might make more work for them, like it did for uh, a police department in a story I think your parents will like. An older couple were getting ready to go to bed. The wife said, I think you left the light on in the garage. So he went to the back door to go turn off the light and noticed a couple of guys breaking into his garage. So he called the police, told them about the break-in, and the police dispatcher said, well, I'm sorry, but we don't have anybody available to send over. He said, okay, hung up, waited about 60 seconds, then called the police back and said, hey, I called you a minute ago to tell you about the guys burglarizing my garage. You don't have to worry about it. I shot them. Within two minutes, there were two cop cars there. They nabbed the burglars, and then said to the homeowner, I thought you said you shot him. He said, I thought you said nobody was available. <laughs> yeah. Jesus wants his people to be people who tell the truth. So he says, I tell you, do not swear, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, or by your head. You can't even make one of your hairs white or black. A cross-reference you might jot in the margin of your Bible is Matthew 23. In that chapter, we see what had become of oath-taking in Jesus' day. People thought that oaths were more or less binding depending on the wording. If you swore by heaven, that was pretty serious because God lives there. But if you swore by anything earthly, eh, not so much. Jesus finds this hair-splitting. Because God is sovereign over heaven and earth and everything in them. So whether you swear by something heavenly or something earthly, you're on God's turf. He's so sovereign, He's sovereign even over the color of your hair. You're not in charge. You're not in control. This is God's world. And it's better to not swear at all. You don't have to bolster your word by swearing. This is why Quakers and some other groups will, will not take an oath even in court. An early 
Quaker, George Fox, got in trouble for this, his unwillingness to um, swear to tell the truth. And he said, you have given me a book here to kiss and swear on, and this book that you've given me to kiss says, swear not at all. Well, I say as the book says, and yet ye imprison me. How chance ye do not imprison the book for saying so? Now, I can respect that stance, but honestly, I don't think that that's what Jesus is getting at here. After all, the Bible, the Old Testament, the Bible Jesus read allows for oh, taking an oath. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but do everything he said. Or Deuteronomy 6, 13. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Now earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I didn't come to throw out the law. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That is to bring out its fuller intended meaning and apply it to people's lives. So he wasn't negating what the Old Testament said about oath-taking. In fact, Jesus himself was willing to be bound by a sacred oath. We hear later in Matthew about Jesus' trial before the Jewish ruling council. And the trial was a sham, so Jesus didn't cooperate with much of it. When asked questions, he was usually silent. But at one point, the high priest said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Christ or not. And then Jesus did answer. He said, yes, it is as you say. The Apostle Paul was willing to swear a certain kind of oath even when he wasn't in court. He writes in one place, God is my witness. He writes in another place, God can testify. Now, it's not as if Paul had an honesty problem. Not as if he had a reputation for lying and he had to on these occasions say, well, this time I'm telling the truth. No, it's rather that he's underscoring the solemn, serious nature of what he is about to say. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, as we do throughout the sermon, we have to discern the intended spiritual meaning of Jesus' words. Here in verses 34 through 36, we need to see that Jesus is making a stark, apparently unqualified, sweeping statement to make a point. What is that point? The kingdom people tell the truth. Kingdom people do not need to bolster what they say by swearing an oath. Kingdom people are people of unimpeachable integrity. When people in God's kingdom say yes, they mean yes. When they say no, they mean no. Verse 37. Simply let your yes be yes 
And your no, no. Twelve-year-old Gordon's father answered a knock at the door, and it was a police officer. The cops said that kids in the neighborhood had been throwing rocks through people's windows, and that somebody said that Gordon was one of the perpetrators. Dad let the officer into the living room and said, I'll be right back. He went in and privately said to Gordon, do you have anything to do with this? And Gordon said, no. And Dad went back to the cop and said, my son has nothing to do with this. You see, he had come to trust his son. Gordon had, with his dad, a reputation for not lying so that dad could take his bare word at face value and go to the authorities based on that confidence. And so it turns out that the one who had accused Gordon later confessed that he had a grudge against him and had lied. Gordon was innocent. And I think Jesus would point at Gordon and say, that's how I want my people to be all the time. Their yes means yes. Their no no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What does that mean? The evil one, Satan, is, Jesus said, the father of lies. He was a liar from the very beginning. And when we lie, we do his work for him. Or even if we tell the truth but feel like we have to bolster it with solemn swearing, we're kind of conceding ground to the enemy. One uh, scholar wrote this, Whenever I utter the formula, I swear to God, I'm really saying, now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruth and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. In fact, I am saying even more than this. I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start, and just because they're counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. Jesus wants our yes to be yes. And our no to be no. Dr. Diane Comp was vacationing in Europe, and on a rainy day when she couldn't do anything else, she ducked into an Austrian castle and roamed through the library and saw a slender old book that jumped right out at her. The title on the spine was, A Lie Never Justifiable. And it was written by H. Clay Trumbull, that Civil War veteran. A lie never justifiable. Now how this book got from the United States back in the mid-1800s to this Austrian castle, she had no idea. But she did have an idea that God put it there for her. It smote her conscience. Because the day before she went to Europe, she told a lie. It was minutes before the taxi would show up at her apartment to take her to the airport. 
and she called her favorite kennel to make arrangements for her Yorkshire Terrier, Babu. <laughs> and um, the voice on the other end of the line said, are Babu's shots up to date? Oh, nuts, she thought. She had intended to take her dog to the vet in the last couple of weeks, but life happened. She got too busy. And now here she was with this dilemma. If she said no, the kennel wouldn't take her dog. And then what was she going to do? Forfeit her flight, her vacation? So she lied. She said, yes, shot's completely up to date. Taxi horn beeped. She got her luggage and the dog into the cab. On the way to the airport, they stopped at the kennel, and there she had an opportunity to make things right because there was a sign behind the counter that said, if your pet's shots are not up to date, we can take care of that for you here today. But for her to ask for that would have been to admit that she lied a few minutes earlier on the phone, and so she said nothing. And there she is in a castle thousands of miles away, a lie never justified. Well, that experience prompted her to do a four-month experiment. She journaled every day on lies that she witnessed in the media or temptations to lie herself, even to shade the truth. And because she was a sponsor in her church's youth group, she was able to persuade some teenagers to join her in this four-month journaling experience. And together they learned a lot. They learned that a lot of people lie and think that they can justify it because of, well, you know how you justify your lies. But that most of the time, they learned, um, our, our lies are to keep us out of trouble or to make us look better. They learned that almost everybody lies. In fact, um, the teens who were willing to be honest with her admitted that they had lied to a parent or a teacher in the last seven days and that that wasn't all that unusual. Almost everybody lies. She writes in her own book, I did meet one ray of hope this year, a college student majoring in political science who possesses a single-mindedness about truthfulness. I hope Jeremy runs for political office someday, for this young man hasn't told a lie since his freshman year in high school. I believe him when he tells me that, no matter how incredulous the claim sounds. And this is what Jeremy says. In seventh grade, I learned about my Welsh ancestors and our family motto, sola nobilitus virtus, which means virtue alone and nobles. I decided to make it a point not to lie. It was hard and took time. But after two years, I reached a point where I told the truth whether people wanted to hear it or not. I don't believe I have told a lie since my freshman year in high school. I used to defend this view by telling people, my word is my bond, but now I supplement that with my life verse, James 
Above all, beloved, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. <laughs> Jeremy got that from James. Where do you think James got it? From Jesus, who wants our yes to be yes, our no to be no. Jason played baseball for several years as a young man and was almost always the smallest player on either team. One summer in particular, his short stature stood out because he was a seventh grader playing on a seventh and eighth grade league. And on one occasion, he got up to bat, and the pitcher, who was more than a foot taller than Jason, and had a really good arm, threw a fastball that Jason probably didn't even see. Strike one, the ump called. Then another fastball came across the plate for a called strike two. And then another one, this one, unintentionally probably, aimed right at Jason. He jumped back, his helmet flew off, his bat went flying, and when he got up and dusted himself off, the ump said, take your base. And Jason said, but it, it didn't hit me. The ump said, take your base, son. And Jason said, honestly, it, it didn't hit me. And in the stands, the fans of that team were all thinking, come on, take your base. In the stands, Jason's dad was thinking, take your base. Just take your base, son. Your war is over. You're going home. Well, the ump looked out at the infield ump, and that guy just shrugged. And so the ump said, okay. Counts one and two. Batter up. So Jason dug his cleats in, took a stance, and another fireball, fastball, right down the middle. This is the kind of pitch that should have sent Jason to the dugout. But he slammed it. Cracked a, a ball out into left center for a stand-up double, and the crowd went wild. And even the manager of the other team spit his sunflower seeds out and said, you got to love that. you got to love that. Stand for the benediction. Which comes to us from the Apostle Paul, who blesses his congregation and us with these words. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And let all God's people say, Amen.